Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Lunar New Year kicked off last week as millions of Chinese people left the cities they live for the homes they grew up in. For many, their trips coincided with the outbreak of the coronavirus, an epidemic that the government has responded to with intense travel restrictions in Wuhan, a city of 11 million that's ground zero for a disease that's killed more than 100 people. The intensity of the quarantine has raised questions from outside observers who worry about the unintended social consequences of the government's move. And we kind of wanted to discuss what exactly is happening with this particular virus, what a quarantine might look like, and also to speak to someone who has some firsthand experience with this type of thing. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I am Tim Dalrymple, president and CEO of Christianity Today. Tim, I was hoping that for our gut check, I could just get your reaction about this coronavirus situation. Yeah, well, you know, in our last episode, we talked about the fires spreading across Australia. And we talked about some of the videos that you see that are really thought provoking, really sobering. I think similarly in this case, you know, a different kind of disaster unfolded. And you see videos of Wuhan, which is just where the streets are entirely empty. I mean, it looks like a ghost town, and yet this is a city of 11 million people. Numerous cities within that region have been quarantined here. It doesn't feel so distant. You know, my my family, my wife is Chinese. American. Uh, we have a lot of close ties with China. And in fact, I was planning to travel to Hong Kong soon and got a note from my mother-in-law this morning who was asking me if I could possibly delay that trip. So it is amazing in this globally interconnected world how an outbreak in this inland province in China becomes something very quickly that matters for everybody. I think what's so insane about the situation to me is that this happened during Chinese New Year. I don't know how many people are familiar with what Chinese New Year actually means from a logistical standpoint, but it basically means millions and millions and millions of people who are traveling not only all over the country, but also all over the world to return to their families during that time. I feel just awful on top of the fact that this is already happening, that it happened to go on during a time where people were looking forward to seeing other people. And of course, that is <laughs> a very effective way of also spreading the disease into other parts of the world as well. So I, I, I did read some accounts from people who had come home to Wuhan, Wuhan, and they were talking about their own fears that they might not be able to leave to go back to their jobs. And so I feel for everyone who does feel that type of professional or other types of stress of things that they need to get back to in the cities that they now live in, you know, who may be personally unaffected by the virus as well. For those who don't know, who, who think of New Year kind of in the Western sense, in China, it, it, it is almost obligatory that you would go and, and spend that time with family and have a fairly extensive vacation during that time period. It's the largest annual migration of people in the world. So these are people within China or Chinese who have spread into places like Singapore and Malaysia and Indonesia and 
Hong Kong and so forth. Just mass numbers of people traveling during this time of year. All right, Tim, who is joining us today to kind of give some more perspective on the situation? Well, I am really excited to talk with Dr. Eileen Bird. She will tell you that she is not an MD, not a physician, but a PhD, a laboratory scientist. She's professor at Emory University School of Medicine, and she's the director of clinical microbiology there and has participated in the ways in which Emory has, sometimes alongside the CDC or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has responded to infectious diseases, to outbreak. Uh, she can tell us later about her involvement with Ebola, for instance. But Eileen, first, a very brief question. You know, I'm always fascinated by the letters that come after people's names. So there's the PhD, and then there's something I had never seen before, and that's the D, and then in parentheses, ABMM. Can you tell us what that means? This means that I am a board-certified clinical microbiologist. D stands for Diplomate, and ABMM is American Board of Medical Microbiology. So it's just kind of the grade-A stamp of approval on what I do. Gotcha. Great. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about your, your background, your training, and your experience with other outbreaks prior to this one. I got my doctorate degree actually at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, And after that, I worked for 12 years at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, and then about 12 years ago, moved here to Atlanta, Georgia to accept the position I'm currently in. As part of the position I'm currently in, Emory has this serious communicable diseases unit. It is important for someone in my position to be on the staff of that unit. So that provided me a really unique opportunity, that, especially in the Ebola patients that we cared for back in 2014, 2015. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about that experience? So we know one another and have floated around similar circles within Atlanta. And I, I remember hearing a, a bit about your work taking care of patients with Ebola, but why don't you share that with our audience? You know, we had, ever since I arrived here at Emory, did drills and training in the Serious Communicable Diseases Unit so that we would be in a state of preparedness should a situation arise uh, where we would have to activate the unit. You do the drills and you feel pretty comfortable, but when we actually got the call to accept our first patient, U.S. National, who is being flown back to the United States with Ebola to be cared for, it caused a little bit of angst, I would say. We had a couple of days to prepare. And I think when all of the unnecessary people kind of got out of the way and let the people who were trained to do what they needed to do, do their jobs, it, it fell into place fairly smoothly. So I was actually, you know, very proud of how all of that worked out. For me, It was quite different from my day-to-day work. I didn't actually do any laboratory testing in the unit until the patient had been here. It was the third day that I was doing testing. And so I was in full, you know, personal protective gear, Tyvek suit, PAPR respirator, uh, which is a little different to work with that kind of equipment on down in the lab. The lab is right next to the patient's room. That was one thing that was different 
for me because usually I'm quite in the background, don't get to see the patients that we're doing testing on. But the patient was in the room right next to me and it was very visible how sick that patient was. I'll, I'll have to admit it caused me a moment of pause when I held that first tube of blood knowing that Ebola virus was in there and what it was doing to the patient. Also knowing that I had full protection with my protective gear and confidence in my ability to do my work, you know, you proceed. Also interesting that first day was that once I got the tests set up, some of the tests are done fairly quickly, 10 or 15 minutes. Another test that I was doing took about an hour. Here I was in a biocontainment lab. No one was going to come in. I wasn't going to leave. So I had really protected quiet time, which doesn't really happen. You know, I thought for a moment, what do I do with this time? I had a computer in the lab. I could have done some work, but it took me just a moment to think that really what I needed to do was pray for that patient in the room next door. I started seeing the numbers coming off the instruments. I knew how sick he was. So that's what I did. It was a great exercise in kind of relieving some of the fear, also in just connecting me to that patient. Help me understand a little bit about the work that you do. What is it in, in those sorts of testing scenarios? What is it that you're hoping to learn and what role does that play in the gaining a better understanding of the disease or better treating the patient? Some of the work is just basic chemistries, you know, sodium and potassium and glucose and things like that. Numbers that we need for the immediate care of the patient to determine how much fluid the patient needs and that sort of thing. And then because it was Ebola and we really didn't know much about it, some of the testing we did was just to determine how widespread this virus was in the patient's body and to kind of learn as treatment went along, you know, how things were progressing. So there was some kind of not really researchy type testing being done that was done at the CDC, but just to better understand the disease process. And this work that you did was pretty similar to work that you've done all the time. It's just the stakes were <laughs> significantly more intense. Right. Testing I do in my clinical lab, you know, all day long, every day is to diagnose infectious diseases. And then the basic chemistries and things like that are, are done very, very routinely. But this was definitely high stakes testing just because of the nature of the virus. Can we talk a little bit about coronavirus and how it's transmitted? Could you explain that to our listeners? There are four common human coronaviruses that are found worldwide, and they really cause the common cold along with rhinovirus. So a lot of us have been exposed to coronaviruses in our life. But recently, there are three other human coronaviruses that are the exception. They're limited in their geography, and they produce really life-threatening illnesses. So these are the SARS coronavirus that emerged in 2002, 2003, and then the MERS, Middle Eastern coronavirus that emerged in 2012. And now we have the Wuhan pneumonia syndrome coronavirus that just emerged in December of 2019. These newer 
coronaviruses are really originate in animals. And either because humans come into contact with these animals that they normally wouldn't, or because the virus has mutated to be able to you know, infect humans from animals. Humans are exposed. What we know about the Wuhan pneumonia coronavirus is that it is transmitted. I think we, we don't know actually the animal source. We know that there was this market in Wuhan that sold kind of some exotic type animals that were used for food consumption. But I don't think that they've identified the actual animal source. When a new virus like this is found in a population that hasn't seen it before, and especially in such a high-density population, you, you mentioned 11 million people in Wuhan. This is a lot of people who are not immune to this virus, and they found very quickly that the virus could be spread person to person. The spread is by droplets. This means by coughing or sneezing or by something called fomites. And this just means contact with surfaces that become contaminated. You know, people cough or sneeze into their hands and then touch a surface. We're still learning a lot about this new virus. I don't think we know exactly like how long it stays on surfaces and is viable, but it, it appears to be for a, for a period of time. Eileen, I have a question about the science of viruses like these. So, so we talk about how it mutates in such a manner that it then becomes communicable from animals to humans and then from humans to humans, right? And, right. And, and I'm used to thinking of mutation along evolutionary timescales, very long timescales. And yet it sounds as though these viruses have the capacity to mutate very quickly. Is, is that correct, number one? And if so, how? Is there some sort of property of viruses that they're more inclined toward rapid mutation? I think, you know, not being in my exact area of expertise, but viruses that replicate quickly tend to mutate more rapidly. Just because replication has checks and balances, but when the process happens really fast, sometimes those checks and balances aren't perfect. And so mutations can happen. Not sure. It, it does seem like we're seeing more recently, you know, in, in the last decade or two than we had like prior to that. I'm not exactly sure what pressures might be causing that. It's, it's very interesting. And I think places like the Centers for Disease Control are, are exploring those mechanisms. As I read the news reports, on the one hand, the, the number of fatalities so far is, of course, very small. And even the, the fatality rate seems to be fairly low. It sounds as though it's people with compromised immune systems, whether that's for reasons of disease or reasons of age or et cetera, who are particularly susceptible to a more aggressive form and, and potential fatality. And so a part of me thinks, well, maybe we shouldn't be more worried about this than we are about the ordinary flu. But then you also see, on the other hand, this enormous international response and, you know, a, a quarantine of tens of millions of people. And, and that leads you to think, okay, this, this really is a, a serious concern. And so how, how worried should people be and where in that spectrum is kind of the right place to land between, well, this is 
the, the fatality rate's not so high on the one hand versus on the other hand, this is a new disease and we don't really know what's going to happen to it yet. It's no mistake that this outbreak is a public health emergency in China. It is true that it seems to be highly infectious. We have a new virus in a high-density population. It's spread easily from person to person. But you're right, it's not considered to be as virulent, for example, as the virus that caused the SARS outbreak in 2003. I think some response is certainly necessary, but I also do think that we need to keep things in perspective. In the United States, we've been told that risk is low. And I I think that this is true. And right, you mentioned influenza, right? It's a far graver health threat in the United States than is the Wuhan coronavirus. In fact, the the last numbers that I saw were since October, about 20,000 Americans have died of the flu this year. So that's a really huge number. I'm really curious if you could just talk to us about the idea of a quarantine. I, I would be interested if you know any more of the history of how they've been used and the extent to which they've ever been in play in the U.S. Quarantine is an interesting concept, right? Its purpose is to restrict movement of people who may have been exposed to an infectious disease so that it doesn't spread. I think some of the response of the Chinese public health officials and government has been appropriate. This limiting the mobility of the population and really shutting down all forms of public transportation, buses, ferries, trains, airplanes, even putting up roadblocks to restrict you know, pu- uh, private cars from leaving the area is quite extreme. And especially, as you mentioned, at the beginning, right at the outset of Lunar New Year, when, you know, people are really wanting, because it's a cultural holiday, to be with their families. And so I think it's a particularly hard time to have this quarantine. I understand there may be some component of legitimate rationale, I I think that it's really quite extreme. What you really want to focus on are the people who are sick. People who are healthy should be vigilant about developing, potentially developing symptoms. I think part of this big quarantine comes from a statement that I heard that there seems to be some suggestion that even healthy people can transmit this virus if they're not symptomatic. If they've encountered the virus, they can transmit it to others. But you know, there are international investigations trying to really explore that a little bit further, including you know researchers at the CDC. If that notion, I think, you know, was the premise for some of this. It's really not evidence-based at this point. Are you aware of any precedent for quarantines here in the United States? Not really. Well, except you hear about right on the cruise ships, like with norovirus outbreaks, the diarrheal illness, people who are on those cruises are you know, restricted to their rooms until the ship comes back to port. 
and that sort of thing. I think there was also a few years ago an influenza outbreak on a cruise ship where everyone was quarantined and essentially told to stay in their rooms until the cruise ship came to uh, to dock at the port. But other than that, I'm really not aware of, you know, of major quarantine type situations. Yeah, all of this is really interesting to me because of the kind of intersection of public policy that comes into play when people are trying to make these decisions about public health and the way that these things are communicated about and also some of the tough decisions that officials feel like they have to make. I'm curious, one thing that can happen in these types of situations is that there can be some misinformation confusion. I'm sure you've seen all of it with people just not really knowing what they're talking about. And I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the things that you wish people better understood about the flu or about other contagious diseases like coronavirus. I think with something like this new coronavirus and the resources that we have now in many parts of the world, public health resources are quite good and we can learn a lot quite quickly. But there are still some unknowns. And so public policies and processes really need to be as well informed as they can be. It does take some time and things can be modified as we learn more. It is a little difficult at times. You know, I would hope that public health officials and local governments would use the best information that they have to make decisions. Well, I know, Eileen, that China faced fairly substantial criticism after this SARS outbreak for not being very timely with information sharing um, and thus, you know, perhaps uh, handicapping the international effort to better understand the outbreak and how it might be treated. I know from prior trips to China myself, when I went in 1998, for instance, I I went to a hospital when I had uh, some blood coming out of my ear. I hope this doesn't gross anybody out. And then we had to figure out what was happening. And, And of course, they wanted to give a shot. And we had been told, well, make sure that you're dealing with needles that have been sterilized. And, right. And so I, I asked whether this was a new needle, which is really kind of the preference. And, and they said, no, it's not a new needle, but you know, <laughs> we, we washed it. And, yeah. and they, as I kind of continued to insist, no, I'd really like to have a new needle. You know, they were kind of laughing at me, this silly American who didn't understand that uh, it had been washed. And they started to tell me, you know, don't worry, we don't have AIDS here in China. And this was 1998. And and shortly after that, it came out that China, in fact, did have a very substantial AIDS problem within the country. And so I did eventually get a a clean, fresh needle. So that that was nice. But it illuminated for me just kind of information doesn't always spread quickly in other countries or even in ours, where people may have motivation to keep things quiet for as long as possible. So I would love to know from, from your perspective as a member of the scientific community. What does it look like? How does the international medical community mobilize when something like this happens? I mean, I was pretty astonished at how quickly it seemed as though there was an understanding of the genetic sequence of this of this virus. So anyway, as someone who lives in and works behind the scenes on these sorts of things, I wonder if you could give us some insight into that. How do people mobilize? How is communicate how is information shared internationally? Who tends to kind of get the best understanding of these of these emerging diseases? 
I think you're right. I think, you know, knowing the genetic makeup and the identification of this particular coronavirus came quite quickly. That can make such a huge difference in developing diagnostics, right? Now we have this new virus and we have people getting sick. We have to be able to detect it. But there weren't existing tests. And so they had to be had to be developed very quickly. Also for, you know, vaccine preparation, which can take many months and, you know, may or may not be effective, but just to be able to work on a potential vaccine, you need to know the sequence of the virus. And so to be able to have that information, I think that China has a fairly good centers for disease prevention, uh, like we do in the United States. And so a lot of the, the work was done there for sequencing this virus. And the World Health Organization and other groups, you know, play a role in making that information available to people who are developing tests and vaccines and treatments and, and that sort of thing. But that doesn't always happen and, and doesn't always happen that quickly. I think we are much better resourced now in that regard than we were a while ago. But, you know, for outbreaks that happen in developing countries where those kinds of resources aren't available, you know, patient specimens have to get to places like the Centers for Disease Control where that kind of testing can be done. And so there can be delays. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. I have a history of having medical crises in China. <laughs> And on my on my last trip to China, which is when we uh, went to pick up my daughter, who we were in the process of adopting, I had kidney stones in the middle of the night in Guangzhou. And Guangzhou is one of the one of the major cities in the south of China on the on the seaboard. There, rushed to a hospital that night that was very much a local hospital, and it was like zombie apocalypse hospital. It was not <laughs> the kind of place that you wanted to be in the middle of the night dealing with a medical emergency. Fortunately, my wife speaks Chinese pretty well, and she was able to help manage the situation. And then, you know, the next day I went to a hospital that was beautiful, and, and you know everything that you would hope for out of a hospital. And so it was almost a tale of two cities right there in Guangzhou that you had kind of one level of medical care that was accessible to a broader set of people. And then you had a di an entirely different level, kind of Western standard, you might say, level of medical care that was available to others. So it does seem, you know, China is in the process of really getting to the cutting edge when it comes to medical care. I also wonder, you know, and I'll just let you respond to this, Outbreaks like this and the measures that are taken to contain them can have a real economic impact as well, and or political impact. And so before we transition and start talking about some of the 
maybe more spiritual dimensions of this story. Yeah, what about, what about the unintended consequences of major quarantines and kind of mass responses to things like this? It panic, political consequences, economic consequences. Is, is this something that you've had an opportunity to think about as, as you've thought about these uh, how these things unfold globally? Yeah, I, I actually have thought about this a little, and I, and I don't know. You know, when you talk about quarantining, you know, 50 million people in the center of China, and this has been going on for a while now. I mean, about a week or so, right, I think, was the first quarantine start. What happens to the country? How does it keep functioning in the throes of a pandemic when everyone is quarantined? If travel's disrupted, if trade is disrupted, how does the economy continue to function? And when people are held up in their homes, and information may not be so forthcoming. I think there starts to be a certain degree of lack of public trust. There needs to be some credible, transparent, honest communication, and I'm not sure how much of that is happening. I think, you know, even things like the local government and public health officials in China have essentially ordered people to wear protective gear like masks and even suits as a preventive measure. I mean, they had to know that for a population of this size, that was just not sustainable. Now there's a situation of shortage, right? And so the biggest problem is that healthcare workers, you know, medical people who are taking care of sick patients don't have enough protective gear. And this puts them at greater risk of catching the virus while they're taking care of patients. It also appears from reports that I've seen to have created some panic among the group we call the worried well. You know, these are people without symptoms, but now they don't have access to the protective equipment that the local government and public health officials said they should have. And so they feel vulnerable, like maybe excessively vulnerable. So I think all of that really can create chaos. Yeah, I think that that is a huge situation of, uh, around what people are actually feeling, right? There's the situation out there and then there's the way that you're interpreting it and internalizing it and trying to figure out how to move forward. I'm really curious, Eileen, in your work, you've talked a little bit about the fear that you kind of processed in that particular situation when you were going to be doing some tests. But I'm wondering if you can explore more deeply about the types of apprehension or fear that you and your team members felt when you found out that an Ebola patient was going to be brought back to the U.S. and type of conversations that you had with your colleagues and how you worked through that from a faith perspective. My colleagues in the Serious Communicable Diseases Unit were not really fearful. Again, because we had been trained, the processes were in place. There was a little angst surrounding that, you know, would that all flow as easily as we thought it would? We didn't know what kinds of near misses or things like that would happen. We did have what we called family meetings twice a day where you could either call in if you weren't physically in the unit or if you were in the unit, attend the meeting where the patient's condition was reviewed, uh, the plan for the day was laid out. 
so that everyone knew, you know, kind of what was going on. And I think that kind of communication just within the unit helped keep things going smoothly and transition, you know, from shift to shift and that sort of thing for continuous care of the patient. A a lot of the fear happened outside of the unit and even in the community. And there were signs going up in the area. Press were camped out on the lawns of Emory University. We were on information blackout, so you know we couldn't really convey anything about what was going on. Of course, for patients' privacy and that sort of thing, that's totally necessary. It, it, it fascinated me how much fear there was in the community. You know, would we let this virus out and and that sort of thing? It amazed me also that even months later, I know one of my staff in the unit went to get you know their teeth cleaned. And they were refused treatment by their dentist because they had been involved in the work in the unit. One of my other colleagues went to give a lecture at a, at a university and was refused. You know, people's fears are really unwarranted. And some of that was really quite surprising to me. You know, having actually been in the unit with the patient, with the patient's blood and <laughs> feeling comfortable in that setting, but people on the outside were not feeling comfortable. You know, in our society today with so much uncertainty, there's political uncertainty, economic uncertainty, there's kind of an underlying noise of fear, right? And so the the temptation is to be afraid. I, I think there are some things that, you know, we can do sort of the Christian response to that, to be aware and informed and know the facts to get your information from credible sources. You know, the World Health Organization, the CDC, for example, in this case, major news agencies have accurate information. Another sort of component of the Christian response would be not to buy into or spread misinformation. It it amazed me how quickly in this current coronavirus outbreak, fabrication surfaced pretty fast, especially on social media statements like this Wuhan coronavirus was a manufactured virus that had been weaponized and that the outbreak was a bioterrorism event and that sort of thing when when the epidemiology and other evidence clearly did not support that. So I think, you know, not to buy into those misinformations or spread that misinformation is, is an appropriate response. You know, the other thing that I've thought about also just because of some of the situations back in the Ebola days that I had just mentioned, you know, with people I knew who had worked in the unit, is not to exclude anyone from activity. I mean, people arriving from China, from Wuhan, they're healthy, they should just be allowed to, you know, to do what they came here to do. And we certainly should not generalize, you know, so that any person of Chinese heritage who happens to cough, oh, no, you know, those kinds of panics, you know, really cannot happen. Yeah, there's something about how people's fear can kind of really bring out the worst in them, right? All these types of prejudices and other concerns can almost feel like they can be a trump card for some of our other anxieties. I'm I'm curious, how might you suggest as Christians, you gave some good practical 
ways that we can act without fear. But I think one of the more complicated things, right, is just having good conversations with our neighbors who may be afraid. And I didn't know if there were any personal conversations that you had in your life around the time of the Ebola situation that you felt you were able to make breakthroughs in how people felt about this particular topic and any advice that you might have about navigating those conversations. Back in the Ebola days, I think it was even hard for my kids to send me off to the Ebola unit. They were young, but they kind of knew what was going on. And I had to assure them that I personally was not at risk because of the personal protective equipment that I had and because of my, my abilities and the, comp- and the confidence I had in my abilities. I did have conversations, you know, at our neighborhood pool. Well, my neighbors knew the kind of work that I did. They knew that I was involved in the Serious Communicable Diseases Unit and they, they would ask questions. I, I think people are curious, you know, are curious. And so just to talk to them about about the facts and their you know when there's cause for concern and when there's not because people's imaginations do kind of run away with them i think you know now months or years later people find it interesting and fascinating you know that i was involved in that my daughter's teachers go oh you, you did what you know you're your daughter said that you were involved in taking care of the Ebola patients. Yes, I was. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, so I think now that it's you know quite a distance behind us, we can look back. But in in the thick of it, it can be a little scary. And I think you know knowing the facts, not letting things get blown out of proportion, is really important. People who don't know or know where to get the facts can be the source of some some misinformation. Along those lines, Dr. Bird. Earlier, you said that you warned against kind of excluding people who may have recently returned from China, for instance. And what do you say to people? Because I understand that there is a long incubation period before symptoms begin to show. And yet I also know that there is a way of screening people as they come back. Can you say something about that screening and how accurate it is and and how comfortable that we can be that people who may have returned from the affected area are, are healthy? One of the United States responses to uh, this outbreak is folks from the Centers for Disease Control looked at the United States airports who received direct flights from Wuhan, right? And they identified only three, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and JFK in New York. They focused on those three airports with direct flights from Wuhan started monitoring at those airports. So people getting off the airplanes would have their temperature checked. And then they, there was, as I understand it, like a symptoms monitoring questionnaire that they would fill out. And anyone who wasn't feeling quite right or who had a fever would then be referred to appropriate healthcare workers who were in those areas. I think it was just about a week ago or so that O'Hare and Hartsfield-Jackson in Atlanta were added to that list just because of secondary flights. Maybe people went from Wuhan to somewhere else in China and then flew to the U.S. Those screenings were added at, at those airports. So I think that those can be very effective. Signs are posted, and you know that if you're if you're getting off of an airplane and you're not feeling well, to report to a certain area or a certain person. I think the notifications were of a nature that 
we want to take care of you, not that we want to identify you so that, you know, so that people would be afraid to uh, to identify themselves to a, a health official. I, I think how we present it is is really important. You know, those screenings are not 100%. I think they're pretty good, though. I, I think there are still five cases that have been identified in, in the U.S. Were, were picked up that way, and patients were appropriately isolated and treated in hospitals. And there haven't been secondary cases in the United States. So the virus hasn't gotten out, if you will, and and spread. So I think those measures, kind of as simplistic as they are, can be very helpful. Eileen, why don't you tell us a little bit, reflect a little bit on your vocation. So I don't know what you dreamt of being when you were little, but God has brought you really to a really unique position. And I, and I wonder how you think about God's purpose in your life, God's purpose through your work, and how you live out your faith in the workplace, given what you do. When I was really young, I thought I would be an ambassador to France, because I, <laughs> I love the French language, studied in school. When I got to college, and even just as I was graduating from college, I was going to study cardiac physiology. That's how I was going to move forward after my bachelor's degree. But I wound up graduating a semester early. And so I was looking for work. There was an opening at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee for a microbiologist. I thought, well, I've, my degree is in biology, not specifically in microbiology, but I've taken all the microbiology classes I can take. And I really did enjoy it a lot. But I didn't quite have the qualifications for this position. Ran it past my mom, and I remember her saying, just go ahead and apply, because you never know who else might be applying and what their qualifications are. So I applied for the position. Much to my surprise, I guess, I I got the position. And so I found myself working in microbiology, which was not my original intention. But I loved it, and I thought it was fascinating. I remember being told by one of my mentors when I said, you know, I'm going to study microbiology and infectious diseases, you know, oh, you're going to be out of a job in a couple of years because they're going to find, you know, the magic bullet antibiotic and everything is going to be treated and, and you're not going to have work. But of course, that that has not been the case. If only that were true, yes. Yeah, right. I wish it was. I, I really wish it was. I would find something else to do gladly. It, it kind of, you know, that first job that I had after I got my bachelor's degree, I worked at for a while and then it became really clear that I I needed an advanced degree, and so and that advanced degree would be in microbiology. And so I went and and uh, and got a master's degree, and then a doctorate, and worked in you know clinical laboratory medicine and hospital setting, which I love. You know, had I not kind of paid attention, or it's funny how you know doors open and doors close, and the path that that you follow, but. I think for me, you just, I was not necessarily a, a deep, Christ, deeply rooted Christian at that point, but you try to live in the center of God's will and follow, you know, where God wants to take you. I mean, if someone had told me, even when I was a practicing clinical microbiologist in, in Michigan, that I would be treating Ebola patients in Atlanta, I would not have imagined it in my wildest dreams. You, you know, you just kind of, you be faithful and, and go where it takes you. 
Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, Eileen. It was really great to hear you talk about your own journey of how you got to where you are. I wanted to close with maybe you giving our listeners one or two specific ways that they can pray for people that are either currently uh, afflicted by this coronavirus or, you know, at risk of contracting it? You know, I find myself in my own prayer life praying really for three major things surrounding this outbreak. One is for the government of China, that they really make well-informed, evidence-based decisions for their population. I know in their heart of hearts, they're trying to prevent the spread of this virus. I'm not sure that the methods they're using are necessarily the best that they you know, continue to be or are transparent with people, that they react at an appropriate level. I pray really hard for the healthcare workers in China. I know they haven't been well-resourced and supplies are coming in, especially you know, things like Tim mentioned with you know, fresh needles and personal protective equipment, things to keep themselves and their patients safe. And I pray for the general population in China. This has to be quite scary, you know, the speed at which people are getting sick. The mortality rate is low, which is good, but still, you know, still unsettling. I really pray for those three things, the government, the healthcare workers, and the and the population in China. Thanks so much. There's an organization called China Source, which has been a great friend and partner to CT in our coverage of China over the years. They recently published this prayer from a pastor in Wuhan, and I thought I would just close by reading a couple lines from that as he, I believe it's a he, gave suggestions about how those outside in the West might kind of interact with what's going on. And this pastor writes, past few days, I have received many inquiries from foreign pastors They and the whole church are concerned for this city, even more for us, and confronting this epidemic, seek to serve the city with us. Thus, I especially ask them to turn their eyes upon Jesus and do not be concerned with my welfare, nor be agitated or fearful, but pray in the name of Jesus. Good-hearted people are through their actions serving the city, especially the medical personnel who are risking their own lives. If they can take on such worldly responsibilities, how can we not more readily take on spiritual responsibilities? If you do not feel a responsibility to pray, ask the Lord for a loving soul and earnestly prayerful heart. If you are not crying, ask the Lord for tears, because we surely know that only through the hope of the Lord's mercy will the city be saved. So we will publish a link to that prayer if people would like to read the whole thing in the show notes for this. Thank you so much for the really informative and thoughtful discussion. Eileen, it was really great to hear your perspective, and I'm glad that you could feature it here. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So people who have feedback for us on this podcast, we encourage you to send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. It gives everyone a chance to share something that has brought them joy recently. Tim, I think we are going to ask you to go first. My lovely wife, Joyce, has had multiple careers. She started out as a broadcast journalist, ended up going to law school and became an attorney and worked in particular in immigration law. More recently, she acquired an MDiv degree, a Master's of Divinity, and and began to work in vocational ministry. Both of you, Morgan and Dr. Bird, know Joyce, and she is the most liked person in every room. She has a sparkle to her. It's been a really wonderful 
and really joyful to see her in her work recently with the church that we attend, Wellspring Alliance Church in South Wheaton. There's not a particular moment that I could isolate, but she's just been leading so many meetings and doing them so beautifully that it's been a joy to watch. And I'm, I'm grateful and proud that our daughters get to witness that. She's the real deal. Yes, she is. Agreed. She's the real deal. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Tim, where can people find you outside of here? Morgan, they can find me <laughs> on Twitter. Again, I'm pretty easy to find via Google because my name is unusual. It's a Scottish name that is reserved only for very few. But you can look me up on Twitter at Tim Dalrymple underscore would be my Twitter handle. Nice job with the SEO, huh? Oh, thank you. I did my best. Unfortunately, Tim Dalrymple without the underscore was already taken. (laughs) All right. Eileen? The highlight of my week, Tim, you'll be able to relate to this, was my youngest daughter, Larissa, who is a competitive gymnast. She had a meet and was competing last Friday. I was in attendance watching. She had just learned a new skill on the bars. Wasn't totally comfortable with it, but wanted to compete it. Her coach kind of told her not to, didn't think she was quite ready yet. She warmed it up. I was watching and she competed it and she scored well. And I was so proud of her grit. (laughs) <laughs> just just in kind of doing that. And I think it gave her some confidence in the rest of the meet. She did well. And that, that was such joy just to see the joy on her face of having accomplished it. That's fantastic. Good for her. The yes. first time you compete a new skill, in particular on kind of high-flying events like the uneven bars, that can be a scary thing. So you're right to be proud. Yeah, she did it. <laughs> I also admire her for pushing herself, even with her coach, maybe feeling like she wasn't necessarily ready. Yeah, she knew. Where can we find you outside of this podcast? So the easiest way to find me, I don't have a Twitter account. As social networking, I just really don't have time for. Email is the easiest way, eburd at emory.edu. All right. Thank you. We have mentioned multiple times now that it is Lunar New Year and it is definitely Lunar New Year in my life. I went to two dumpling parties last weekend and I have another dumpling party this weekend, which is pretty much the best part of Lunar New Year is eating lots of dumplings. They've been great. We got to like make the dumplings ourselves, which was very fun. One of them, she actually like made the dough. I really like hearing from people about what the dumpling ceremony process means to them. There's a lot of friends who say that this was the time that their parents would be more willing to talk about all different types of things and open with them about parts of their life. So it has a sentimental significance as well, in addition to making having a very yummy result. All right, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript available is from Boone Ashola. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you end up going to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. We truly appreciate your feedback. We also ask anyone who is interested in supporting the show to become a subscriber of Christianity Today magazine. And you can do that by going to orderct.com slash podcasts. We will see you all next week.